Welcome back to The Rate of Change with York Wealth Management. As advisors to some of the wealthiest families in the country, The Rate of Change is a podcast designed to help you in the pursuit of building long-term wealth through the insights of some of the brightest minds in asset management. I'm your host, Murdoch Gaddy, and in today's podcast, we're speaking with Bob Sahoda, the Managing Director and CIO of Revolution Asset Management. Revolution provides wholesale investors access to a diversified portfolio of Australian and New Zealand corporate loans and asset-backed securities. The fund currently has a total fund size of roughly $1.89 billion. The underlying fund holds a total of 47 loans as of the 31st of July, 2023, with an average expected life of the portfolio being 1.3 years. Revolution seeks to outperform the RBA cash ride by 4 to 5% per annum. The portfolio current yield is 10.1% with a credit spread of the portfolio above BBSW of 584 basis points. The average credit rating of the portfolio and the loans is BB plus as well. So Bob gives his insights into their process and lending philosophy. He also outlines the private lending universe, the overall health of the loans in the portfolios, and he he gives his thoughts on the outlook for lending in current markets as well. In particular, I found the conversation of the state of the Australian economy quite insightful, especially how corporate company loans are faring in comparison to commercial and residential property loans especially in a post-COVID rising interest rate and lockdown environment. So before we get into the podcast, I would also like to encourage you to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and to keep your feedback coming. You can reach me at mgatti at ywm.com.au. So with that being said, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So sit back, relax and enjoy Bob Sahoda, welcome to The Rate of Change with York Wealth Management. Great, Murdoch. Um, thanks for having me. Really appreciate the, uh, the opportunity to come and speak on your famous podcast. Anytime. For many of you who may not be familiar with Bob, uh, before co-founding Revolution, Bob was one of the pioneers in private credit in the Australian markets, been around the traps for quite some time. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what attracted you to private credit markets? So essentially, how did you get into private credit? Yep. Great question. So um, this year marks 30 years in the markets um, for me. So quite a long time. Um, I started off uh, humbly in uh, the banking system. So I worked for ANZ and NAB, learnt grassroots credit skills from really understanding how businesses operate and what sort of leverage you can apply to different industries, businesses and sectors, um, both in the business bank and institutional banks. Um, from there, I, I probably the biggest change in my career was when I went from banking to funds management, and um, I would recommend funds management industry to to anyone. Um, I, I went from National Australia Bank to National Asset Management in the late 1990s, uh, and we were back then one of the pioneers of putting loan product into fixed income portfolios. Back when the corporate bond market was nowhere near as developed, and some would say not not even developed today. Um, we were putting loans into those portfolios for really three key reasons, and we'll go into this throughout the podcast. But the fact that these loans are floating rate, wonderful back in the late 90s, even better in 2023, um, they are secured. So if we, we, we're now looking at um, the real possibility of a recession, the fact that um, you've got security 
and you got security over good companies and good quality loan collateral uh, comes to the fore when tough times hit. Thirdly, diversification. So it's very tough if you're confined to public markets to um, not have a high concentration of the banking and financials. Um, so you know, private debt gives you good access to other industries and businesses that you would not ordinarily find easy to get exposure to. So a quick whistle-stop tour around the rest of my career. From there, I went to AMP Capital. Um, again, one of the only institutions back then, um, this is early 2000s, of putting um, of providing loans to private equity when they go out and acquire a company. It was generally a very bank-dominated market, but AMP Capital were one of literally a handful of institutions that were providing that senior secure debt for large-scale acquisition. So wonderful opportunity to learn all about that. Um, completely changed gears after that, worked at PIMCO, uh, both in the Australian office in Sydney and also in Newport Beach, California. That was more liquid-traded corporate bonds, both investment grade and high yield. I guess the most relevant experience to the, the chat we're having today came in the form of when I joined Challenger in February of 2005. Um, back then, the life insurance company for Challenger was only about $3 billion in size, and I had carriage initially of a $1 billion out of that $3 billion balance sheet. Now, uh, if, if all your listeners are familiar with Challenger, they issue annuities, and they're very, very certain in terms of their liability stream. So I took the idea very early, given my passion for private debt, to say, well, why don't we put a portion of the allocation into private debt? Um, that offers you not only the right credit margin, but also a pretty handsome illiquidity premium for that complexity and for the fact that not many mandates can do it. Uh, to their credit, initially $200 million out of that billion dollars got allocated to private debt. And that was really when my first uh, foray into, into managing portfolios. So definitely pre-GFC. Um, um, throughout the course of my um, time at Challenger, I built that business from scratch. Um, obviously with a real passion for private. So that became a larger portion over time as the life insurance company grew, but also get garnering the earliest mandates in the country uh, with, a, with, a, with Australian Super initially in 2009, followed by Hester and Commonwealth Super Corporation. So three of the larger pension funds had, uh, really embraced private debt quite early in the piece. <clears throat> Excuse me. So after that, I guess the, um, the, the road for us to keep doing what we're doing started to narrow because of regulation. So initially, global banking reform started affecting the banks uh, and then slowly worked its way into the life insurance uh, and, and also Challenger. So the idea was that myself and two of my co-founders would take the same strategy that had been successfully, um, successfully implemented and, and run with the test of the global financial crisis but put it into an unregulated format. And so five and a half years ago, we started Revolution Asset Management with a uh, concept on a whiteboard, a hope, a dream, um, with, uh, with, a, with, with $50 million seed capital from Australian Catholic Super, who we're forever indebted to. Today, we have $2.5 billion of, of um, committed capital in the fund uh, with our flagship strategy approaching $1.9 billion. What's the average return? So the return has been an interesting one. So as I mentioned to you, uh, we do everything in floating rate. So we have 47 loans, uh, and those loans generally pay a credit margin above the floating rate of anywhere through time since inception of about 5.8 to about 6% return. And so as you know, with 12 successive and, and, and rapid uh, interest rate rises, our yield on a look forward basis is currently 10.2%. 
So it's, it's basically the 4.1% base rate plus, you know, a roughly a 6% margin. So you end up with 10.2 kind of a, a gross yield pre-fees. Yeah, well, just uh, I went to an event yesterday and a gentleman up there was discussing that, you know, if you're looking for essentially a return above risk, well, what is essentially the most conservative asset you can get? So you'd agree you can go get a government bond these days, what, for 5.5? I think CBA is paying 7.2. So 10.2%, you know, for essentially above that in this particular space, you know, from an, entra- uh, an investor listening, you know, can be perceived as quite attractive. So why don't we actually just touch on what actually is the universe of the private lending? And why I'm phrasing this way is a lot of our listeners, some of them are highly sophisticated and understand the space. Some of this may be the first time they're listening to what is this space because they've just had legacy banks for their entire life. What actually is the um, private lending uh, universe? And then secondly, as a subcategory, what underlying, um, you know, as an example, commercial property, you know, I don't know the answer, but commercial property, you know, uh, companies, what, what exactly do you like lending to? Yeah, great question. So look, um, for your listeners, um, you'd be forgiven to not completely understand what people mean by private debt or private credit. Um, and you'd be forgiven because it means very different things to very different people. So under this broad umbrella of private credit or private debt, you've got low risk, low return, um, you know, points in the in the cycle in the in the in the in the market. So, for instance, lending money to BHP through a loan—that's <clears throat> private debt, right? Rather than a corporate bond. But as you know, banks are very happy to lend to a credit quality of BHP. So, the returns that you get on that would be sub two percent margin. Um, you know, also infrastructure lending. So, good, stable, transparent cash flows means that you've got very good credit profile. Again, very very efficient market to getting you know cheap long term funding. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, however, <clears throat> excuse me, you've got very high risk return. So um, special situations, distressed debt, um, and what what we don't find attractive for us is lending to um, property development companies. <clears throat> Sorry, uh, lending to property development companies. Um, these these sorts of opportunities come along uh, through the cycle, but we feel as though anything of that cyclical nature or ones that rely simply on selling assets to pay back a loan rather than real cash flow lending is what we're all about. So they belong in a high risk, higher return um, kind of setting. The other one that we see quite often coming up is lending to smaller companies, SME lending. Um, You should be getting a higher return for those because when the cycle turns, SMEs are the ones that are under most pressure and least able to pass on input price increases to their end customers. So you might ask, what do we focus on in our strategy? Really, we have three key subsectors. First and foremost in real estate is the lower end of what we consider to be um, the um, risk return in our strategy. Because we're looking for stabilized property, i.e. built property in industrial, commercial office with good quality tenant cash flow. Now, that cash flow is what allows us to do our credit work to work out whether we can lend them money and they can pay us back through that cash flow. And should that not uh, come about for whatever unforeseeable reason, we can then sell the property to get our money back. Rather than simply saying, we're going to lend money to a property developer, you've got the risk of it being completed on time and on budget, then you have to sell the particular underlying property or properties to get your money back. That is, in our view, not really credit risk. That is really taking a forward view on execution and also then the forward valuations of those particular properties for you to get your money back. So that's one element. 
the second element is leverage buyout lending. So this is senior secured lending to the very, very um, familiar and top market share companies um, that, that everyone would be familiar with uh, if you're in Australia. So we're talking about companies like Arnott's Biscuits, uh, MYOB, Healthscope Hospitals. So all of these three are Patty's Foods, you know, four and 20 pies and Nana's apple pies. We lend money to the private equity firms that have purchased those businesses, but then lent the money on a senior secured basis alongside other lenders. We take security over these wonderful companies that are through the cycle very, very stable in terms of their cash flow. They have the ability to pass on input prices to their end consumers and thereby maintain profitability and be able to pay our debt under all reasonable, you know, forward views of the world. What do we, what do we don't do is um, lend money to retail, to tourism, to hospitality, to, to mining. Any of these sorts of industries are very cyclical businesses. And if you lever them up, it should come as no surprise that um, at some points in the cycle, it gets very difficult for them to service their, their debt obligations. So we, we've shied away from that. Um, the third element of what we do is asset-backed securities and more so on the private side. So this is probably less familiar to most people, but um, everyone might be familiar with residential mortgage-backed securities or RMBS. Um, but within the overall uh, umbrella of asset-backed securities, we're talking about uh, anything that you can securitize. So be it a pool of mortgages or car loans, auto loans, uh, credit cards or personal loans. Um, these pools are set up in terms of special purpose vehicles where we back very well-established non-bank lenders like Latitudes, First Mac, uh, Wiser, um, uh, like Mortgage House, uh, Bluestone Mortgages. Um, these sorts of groups, they originate loans that go into these special purpose vehicles that we help fund. We don't give the money to those particular um, companies that I just mentioned. We have exposure to the loan pools that they originate. And we take security over these pools of loans. Uh, and so should there be anything wrong at the, um, at the company level, we still have very sound security in the form of these pools of loans. So we, we provide that lending alongside banks who do the most um, risk remote, AAA and AA kind of lending. Um, and we provide that mezzanine finance um, above what the, um, these companies put as first loss in these, in these particular pools. So across these three different sleeves that I just described, we are aiming for a target return for our investors of cash plus four to 5% through the cycle. Uh, and we've been able to deliver that you know, consistently since the inception of the firm because we firmly believe that's where the risk starts to really increase much above sort of 500 over, 600 over credit margin. Um, above that, we start to feel as though you're more correlated to the overall macro picture. Um, but we are really in business to provide people a non-correlated defensive income that we can deliver to them in the form of cash every quarter in distributions at that sort of gross yield of 10.2% currently, less less a, a flat management fee. Well, thank you for that very in-depth uh, insight on how to how it all works. Can we go into, um, just, just quickly, I'd like, look, the best thing about this entire conversation is digging into what's the loans, you know, which specific companies, what's the macro outlook, so many interesting things. But why don't we uh, quickly cover um, the mechanics first, right? Um, you know, sure. uh, is this, uh, do you only, you only have a managed fund, correct? Uh, you know, how many loans are in the fund? Uh, as you said, it's quarterly, quarterly income. You know, how long does it take to get money into the fund, out of the fund? Like what, what are the overall mechanics? Yep. So let's talk about the, the, the main flagship open-ended vehicle that we have is Revolution Private Debt Fund number two. 
Uh, it is approaching a size of 1.9 billion, um, and it is um, allows institutions to access that particular strategy through the master fund. Uh, the master fund is designed for the larger insights, and about three quarters of our funds under management is actually institutional. So, you know, large clients like um, QIC, uh, Brighter Super, AMP, uh, these sorts of names. Um, with that particular master fund, it has a one-year lockup and half-yearly redemption windows. But we've also got a, a very good vehicle in the form of a wholesale feeder vehicle that purchases units into the master fund for people like high net worths, family offices, qualified wholesale investors to access the strategy. Uh, for that particular vehicle, it is monthly applications. So we accept capital at the end of every month. Um, and then we have quarterly redemption windows uh, with no specified lockup period. Um, but we would say the underlying investments that we invest in are quite illiquid. Uh, and whilst there's you know, a 1.4 year credit duration, as in the, 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 tenor, the average tenor of the loans now is about one and a half years, we really don't recommend it to be a short-term ATM machine for anyone, even though we offer quarterly redemption windows. Uh, we would recommend that because we're trying to harvest both the appropriate credit margin for the, for the loans, but also a pretty handsome and observable illiquidity premium of around 2 to 3% when you compare it to the same rating and what you can get in public markets. So, you know, we, we always say you can't turn lead into gold. So what do you give up for that additional return? The illiquid nature of it means that you get a better return, but you should have a more patient outlook when it comes to allocating to this type of strategy. Okay, so that's the mechanics. Um, so how many loans? There's 47 loans in the um, in the flagship strategy. And across the three sleeves, what's the percentage split? Um, look, commercial property is one that I would, I would say has been very opportunistic. So in our five and a half years, we've been in a historically low interest rate environment where the banks have actually loved the deals that we would have liked even more and done them at much lower spreads, lower yields than what we would entertain. So we've only ever done two deals in that space uh, in that time. But the rest of the, um, the the two other sleeves are roughly over time 50-50 between senior secured leveraged buyout loans and and private asset-backed securities in the portfolio. What's the largest loan? Um, what is the largest loan and what's the percentage weighting of that largest loan? So we have a stated maximum Murdoch of 7.5% of the fund, but that's an upper limit. These days, we, we're more limiting it to about 5% of the fund. So it's not, it's not a, a, I mean, 47 loans, it gives you some diversity, but it's not super granular. Um, the biggest loan would be just north of $100 million out of that $1.9 billion. Um, and, you know, that's, you know, to, to give you an example, that's like MYOB. Um, yeah, right. Yep. So MYOB, let me, you know, maybe you know, if I can give your listeners a little bit of a background on why we like MYOB. That was going to be my next question. Great. Um, so, look, I, I think a lot of people have the, the equity lens, and when they think of MYB, they go, oh, it's not a terribly sexy name. And, you know, there's other, you know, maybe disruptor companies coming in that sort of accounting software, um, you know, sort of arena like Zero and others. Um, from a debt point of view, though, we, we really look for companies like this. They have an unassailable 30-year market leadership uh, history. The, um, the retention of their client base above six employees, so we're talking about slightly larger than like very small companies, their retention rate three times has been more than 94%. Um, we, we, we honestly believe that they have transitioned from having desktop versions of their software to cloud 
which has meant their, their customer base is even stickier. And you think about the mission critical nature of what they what the service that they provide means that it's a very high risk strategy to actually pick up, you know, all of your accounting and move it to another company. If it is actually serving you well, it, it remains to be a very sticky kind of a an investment that you make in in providing that very essential part of doing business. So for us, this is um, all the characteristics we like. It is number one market share for 30 years. It has got higher barriers to entry. It's got the ability to pass through any particular increases in the in interest rates um, that they get charged by people like us. But also if there's a labor uh, shortage and they've got to pay more for staff, they pass that through in subscription rates. And we've seen them increasing their subscription rates with very inelastic demand. Uh, and so, you know, this is exactly the kind of business that we, we we particularly like because we have security over that whole business. Now, it's not bricks and mortar being a software business, but you can say that the um, the inherent ability for that that company to generate cash flows, given its position, is very strong through the cycle. Subscription businesses are fantastic. You can you know, forward look what's coming through. You're seeing where it's coming through. But I remember when we were looking at our zero, <clears throat> I had a couple of friends and clients going, "How the hell do you, you know, look at what zero is going to do?" Because you know people don't understand the numbers. What I'm, what they mean by that is you get no subscriptions for like eleven and a half months of the year. Then everyone panics. The last two weeks, it does yeah. their books and goes, and they log in that last two weeks, and they get like an influx. And like, how do they calculate for it? It's it's quite interesting. Um, so that's on the positive side. So everyone knows that, you know, with these investments, loans, uh, et cetera, they're like lobster traps, easy to get into, hard to get out of, right? <laughs> that's one way, to, one way to think about it. Yeah. Well, they taste delicious as well, right? <laughs> Especially when it tastes delicious yeah. a, a couple of lobsters. Um, but the reason why I phrase it that way uh, is when you're looking at these loans, um, obviously you don't want any to go bad on you. So you have a particular criteria that you you know, they must reach in order to even consider it. Uh, what is that criteria? And then secondly, um, if uh, a company which you lend to, you know, macroeconomic thematics change, a competitor comes in, you know, and, and takes them out or cut eats their lunch, how do you deal with that uh, relationship? And do you support them or do you just go, right, sorry, boys, can't help anymore? Like what's, what's your process? Yeah, great question. So look, despite doing all the analysis, there are things that sometimes – happen outside of everyone's control. And therefore, you know, the ability to work with a particular sponsor or company becomes very paramount. So, you know, having the restructuring and workout experience that, you know, I've had over a very long period really comes to the fore. But, you know, our, our, our modus operandi is not to end up in that situation and at all costs avoid it. So that lobster trap, you know, you want it to be absolutely wonderful for all parties, uh, including the lobster. Right. So uh, oh, the other analogy I use is, you know, you can walk down George Street with a wheelbarrow full of cash and give it away. The hard part is getting it back, right, in, term, in terms of people paying you back. So what do we do? So we get really under the hood on understanding how the historical business is operated. What are the key drivers? What are the reasons why they're around? How their ability to generate cash? Uh, and, and are they able to sustain the margins that they've historically had, you know, in periods of, you know, high cyclical times and low cyclical times, and what is the key drivers for us to understand the historicals. Then we generally, from private equity, get these wonderful hockey stick projections uh, in terms of the um, the future outlook because clearly they, they're more worried about the upside. Um, think about we take the same inputs to that, but then we look at what can go wrong because we have absolutely no care about the upside. 
the best thing we can do is um, get our interest payments as and when due and our money back at the end of the loan. So we start to sensitize, you know, what happens to this company? Should there be a competitor come in? Should there be a macroeconomic downturn and recession? Um, should, you know, what happens if they need to pay more for input prices? How long is a lag? Um, or specific things like when we lent money to Ingham's. Um, you know, what happens if a whole group of um, chickens in one of their biggest farms need to be destroyed because of uh, disease? What happens to the cash flow? And, and are they able to still service our debt under those downside scenarios? Um, and really that informs us on how resilient it is. So we promise our investors that we are trying to do everything in our power to have capital preservation being the ethos of our business. So for us to be true to that label, we're looking at what can go wrong. You know, what happens if there's a recession? What happens if there's double-digit unemployment rates at the same time as we have house price declines of 30 to 40%? You know, way worse than what APRA stress tests the banks on. Only if and only if we get to a point where we're comfortable under those ridiculously, um, you know, sort of hardship scenarios, does this company actually, you know, start to falter? Or, or this group of um, loans start to falter, um, do we then include it into the portfolio? Uh, and then once we're in a deal, um, you know, we are monitoring those deals very closely. So we have a very strong relationship and a private um, side information. Unlike a public markets where there's a reporting period, we're getting much more regular and timely information on how these businesses are performing. So if there is a period where there's deteriorating performance, we can actually address that with the company and sponsor and to see what we can do about working through it. Um, and in the worst, worst case is enforce our security and get our money back before, you know, before we lose our money. Um, any specific companies that you've had to deal with that? Well, look, we've got, and, and look, we, we try to be honest and upfront with, with all of, you know, our potential investors and our current investors. Uh, I'll give you a real life example of a deal that hasn't gone so well. Uh, we were involved in um, a company called Genesis Care. And in fact, um, I've been lending to this company when KKR first purchased it back in 2012. This is a, was a wonderful success, Australian success story. It, it started with the roll-up of radiation oncology businesses um, that started in Queensland. It really became the number one, it still is, the number one provider of cancer radiation oncology in Australia. They successfully expanded into the UK and into Spain, um, and have got market-leading businesses there. And then I would say they embarked on what we would say is a, a, a very, very big, big acquisition, uh, which really um, was, a, was a big change for that organization. Right before COVID, they decided to buy a company called 21 Century Oncology in the US, to the tune of 1.4 billion US dollars. So a very large-scale acquisition. And look, COVID didn't uh, help the company, but also I would say KKR and the management team did a very poor job of actually integrating that business into um, the existing very successful business. And pretty soon the earnings in the US started to dwindle. And as a result, because it was debt funded acquisition, the leverage spiked um, you know, to in excess of 30 times debt to EBITDA. So what happens in that case? Look, we, um, we, 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 we campaigned with um, KKR and um, China Resources, who were the, um, the owners, we, um, we, we actually formed a consortium of other Australian lenders to, um, to be able to campaign our best interests. We ended up getting um, involved in the debtor in possession financing under the Chapter 11 um, proceedings in the US. And we've gotten you know, 
I would say, an outcome where we've written that asset down to what we believe the recovery rate is. Um, and we have some ability to recover that should the company, you know, continue to trade on and be able to, you know, basically sell the US business and then the value returns back to the um, the blue chip assets of Australia and Europe. But it's one where I would say, you know, the thesis of why we went into that that deal still remain. We, we like the fact that they were number one in the world in cancer radiation oncology. The fact that this is very non-cyclical, high barriers to entry. Uh, we're talking about cancer, sadly. The incidence of cancer is only on the rise as you know, the developed world ages. Um, and so, you know, that's the fundamental thesis behind it. So it's actually time-critical treatment as well. So you need to get, you know, treated very quickly if you're sadly diagnosed with, with a cancer. But I, I would say the execution of that, um, that foreign acquisition, not the first company to go overseas and not do so well, um, but it won't be the last. So I guess that's something we've learned going forward. If there's a a large scale acquisition um, of an already successful business, then we would um, really pause to see whether we were going to continue to support such a such a bold venture. It's interesting you say that because it doesn't matter what thematic you're investing in, sorry, what asset class, right? Is that you might be even be avoiding some of this thematic, but at the end of the day, there's always a cycle within the cycle. You know, it's either central bank related, flesh related, monetary policy related, or it's a cycle within the cycle in that specific asset class. It reminds me of a quote which we discussed off air by uh, G. My, uh, Michael Homf in his book, A Post Apocalyptic Novel, right? Where he says, Hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, and weak men create hard times right and the reason why i'm bringing that up right now is it's very what you just described was very reminiscent of when of qbe's current problems right when it all you see miners when essentially everyone gets excited the party's happening people are popping champagne you've got cash up here you're, you're writing a success of the current cycle and then these companies proceed to look at mergers and acquisitions at evaluation which they shouldn't because they don't believe that the party's ever going to stop right mm-hmm. and then yeah, again, like, you know, these easy times become, you know, poor times type routine. But then if you look at the other side of it, there's so many people out there as well waiting for those hard times. You know, like uh, we're currently seeing it right now. There's a consolidation play across the globe in the online gambling space, right? Mm. Completely. And the, and what's happening is the strong will survive and whoever survives will essentially swallow up everyone else. And then those hard men that are doing the yards at the bottom may see essentially come up the other side and then create the good times. So it's just very interesting what you're saying. So why don't we um, pivot based on that? Uh, Actually, yeah. just just on that, uh, yeah. Murdoch, um, I, I wholeheartedly agree. So we've had a period where rates have been historically low for a long time. Um, and then we also had um, un, uh, unprecedented fiscal policy stimulus as well in the form of COVID. At those periods of time, you know, it was most important to be disciplined. And, and this is the, the times where... You know, it was a very easy to make money, uh, very easy to lend money. And, you know, a lot of younger people have never seen a default cycle. You know, there's never been one, you know, for many of them because they don't have a long career. However, um, there is reason to understand today because you don't have a chance to trade out of these private debt deals that we do, uh, and none of our peers do either, that our report cards are all going to be collectively marked over the next 12 months on how you've constructed your portfolios in terms of coming into this period of macroeconomic stress, where the hard times will come and it'll be only those that are strongest will survive. Uh, and, and this is where experience comes to the fore. And, and the other thing is 
we don't offer a retail product. We don't think we should be investing in illiquid assets and offering daily or monthly liquidity to, to mums and dads. Why is that? Because the weaker hands um, when it comes to redemptions, um, we're seeing this in, in, in property already. Um, redemption gates are coming down. People are unable to get their money out when they were previously promised monthly liquidity. Um, this is foolhardy in my view. So this well, can, is a- can we dig into that? Because I was just discussing off air, like an article written by um, David Rowe on the AFR, right? He, he quotes this. He says, the global office property crisis has finally hit Australia more than eight months after the property fund managers by Blackstone shocked investors worldwide by limiting invest redemptions. Charter Hall's unlisted direct um, PFA fund, which owns 2.45 billion portfolio of office properties, most of which are located in Australia's maybe CBDs, has also told investors that essentially they've limited redemptions, right? Mm-hmm. So with, with things like this coming in the press and then – but the, the reason I'm phrasing this way is you walk down the street and you see artificial intelligence and the NASDAQ running, right? Mm. But then you go to you know, an event like I went to yesterday for two hours and heard a, a particular fund manager speak and, and then what they're saying. They're all saying that you know, we're not – the interest rate cycle on the way up is not – finished yet you know they're, they're saying that the reason why uh you know people's mortgages yes you went from two percent to paying six six percent it's 200 percent increase from a bottom these people leverage themselves to their heel mm-hmm. but like why aren't they defaulting but um i think uh, someone showed a, a chart regarding that bank default rates if it's from a bank um, are lower than if it's from the private lending side because of the unregulated private lending markets right and the main reason for that was they argued that since people were just home for so long they'd build up like a buffer so to speak. Yes. So no, I'm, I'm speaking to clients now. Like I, I spoke to a client today, a very lovely family, very wealthy family, right? And we're discussing, you know, essentially how do we how do we play, you know, from today going forward? Because it's in this weird state of flux. And I would argue that it's somewhat in this, you know, we discussed the cycle before with Hard Times Quite Good Men, right? The mm. decisions we essentially we make now will essentially derive which way the cycle goes. Yep. Right? So what's your I opinion think- on the... the- and what's happening with that? What we, we, we see this in our asset-backed securities um, uh, portfolio. So these are, we get a good take on what the consumer's feeling throughout those pools, be they mortgages, auto loans, personal loans, credit cards. What we found is the, the impact of the monetary policy uh, tightening is coming with a bigger lag, a longer lag this time around because of those fiscal stimulus payments and people building up bigger reserves. But but fear not. As soon as 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 sure as night follows day, there is the two speed economy is going to come, whereby the people who are stretched um, will run out of those those savings, and they will be forced to liquidate assets. And this is the time where, if you've got patient capital, uh, we don't. As I mentioned, we don't offer liquidity. Mm. We want to be buying not distressed assets, but we want to be sell. We want to be buying off distressed sellers of the best and brightest assets. Um, be that in you know real estate, be that in leveraged buyout loans, or be that in asset-backed securities. And you know, my career, some of the best money and the best deals I made for our clients was in the aftermath of the global financial crisis when we had capital when everybody was heading for the exit gates. Just like when Buffett bailed out Amex, <laughs> the dealer, well, of, dealer of last resort, there, best there, deal he ever did, right at the bottom. There are some wonderful opportunities when that when that market is so dislocated and. Everything starts with a liquidity crunch and people need liquidity, they need a pronto. People that offer daily liquidity, people suddenly go from greed to fear. They want their money back and they want it to put it in the mattress um, when, when fear really takes hold. 
So what does it force fund managers or, or banks to do is to sell their best assets. And you want to be there to collect them at, at your level rather than, you know, where they're currently traded. So this is, this is a very interesting time coming up, in my opinion. So, okay, so you don't take a, macro, a macroeconomic view. It's like it's an all-weather-style lent, right? But surely you must take a macroeconomic view in the essence of what uh, project or company you will lend it to right now. Like, And what I mean by this is say something's at the top of the cycle because clearly you don't want to be in that same scenario with that um, cancer, co- you know, the cancer clinic company, right? You know, something's running up. So if you had your time again, you're looking at that. Someone's coming to you. Shouldn't you, wouldn't you be thinking to yourself, right, it's top of the market for this particular sector. Look, we definitely potentially could do the loan, but are you sure you really want to do it? Do you have these conversations? No. Or- so, so Murdoch, what we do is exactly what you're describing is not what we do. Because if it's at the top of the cycle, we don't want to we, we don't want to touch it, but we don't even want to touch it when it's at the bottom of the cycle. As in, we just want companies that just produce cash flow. Yeah, right. Okay. So we don't take a macro view on yep. is is the next is a good time's going to roll for another two years or three years or five years. Just look at the cash flows. Just look at what can go wrong because in the end we don't get rewarded for the upside, right? So you know, even that Genesis Care example, cancer hasn't gone away. This business in Australia is still very valuable. Um, it's just that they had a misstep on that integration of that big acquisition. But again, this is mission critical, time critical, um, cancer treatment they're providing. This is exactly what we're looking for. We, we also back the number two provider of cancer radiation oncology called ICON uh, in Australia. Um, and it's performed beautifully because, you know, again, sadly, people are getting cancer in a higher, um, higher prevalence. Yeah, it's just it's just so interesting. Um, the entire like where we are today, it's in this weird state of flux. Can go either direction. You know, you, you people looking at it and just going, you know, it could go north, could go could go north in the short term, could go south in the long term. You know, what what are people doing with their money? But what I'm hearing more and more and more that people are quite comfortable to sit in cash to you know potentially lose use a fund like yourself or you know use a use a competitor where you do get a cash flow component is defensive. You're getting essentially more than a government bank bond. You can sit there, relax, let essentially the markets play out however the way they play out. Like I just potentially don't want to play you know, with all my money in that particular game, and they just wait for events to unfold and then look at assets when they're cheap. Yep. Right. I, I totally I hear it, it everywhere. But the, but the biggest thing, um, I suppose, and I, as you say, I, I really like the fact that you guys focus mainly on companies, look for things with cash flows. But the really part I'd like to hear your opinion on is commercial property because I'm hearing this everywhere. And I don't think a lot of Australians out there really can comprehend the potential impact of some of these managed funds, you know, owning these commercial real estate. Like we're sitting in Sydney right now, you know, near the Sheraton on High Park, walking around. Half of these major offices are empty, mm. right? Yep. Like this is unprecedented. Everyone's ever seen this before. Yeah. Well, like, commercial- can you speak to your thoughts on that? Yeah. So commercial property um, has been a you know, source of a lot of wealth for a lot of people for, for decades and cycles. But I would say if you look back at history, um, the State Bank of Victoria almost went under because of its commercial property development risk they had on board. Over a weekend, they had to do a shotgun wedding with the State Bank of Victoria being acquired by Commonwealth Bank. Um, we know that through the cycle, you can make a lot of money. But what happens when we see a confluence of factors is what we've witnessed over the last 12 months um, that all coordinate to affect property. Um, let's look at the factors. Um, Interest rates have gone up dramatically. The supply costs of every raw material and everything that goes into a construction deal, 
all those prices of raw materials have gone up. Labor costs, labor firstly scarce if you can find it, but when you do, it costs you sometimes multiples of what it used to. Um, also, that all affects time. And the biggest enemy in any development is time. Is there's no cash flow whilst you go and complete that particular property build. So if you've got the compounding effect of higher rates for a longer period of time, it will affect your development margins initially. So what the developer and the, what the builder gets, and generally these are not well-capitalized businesses. They have multiple projects across multiple locations with all small amounts of equity. That gets swallowed up pretty quickly. If you're a lender that you lent on a notional on-completion valuation of 60% loan-to-value, and you see a lot of people sprouting off on the loan-to-value ratio of this is 60%. My my um, question to them is, what is the loan? What is the V in loan to value if you don't finish it? If it's partially complete and the builder and developer goes under, in some cases it's over a hundred percent. So you can there's a real you know you know way that you can lose money on a senior secured loan. Isn't and, that just musical chairs hmm. at the highest level? Absolutely. And why do you think we've never ever entertained doing these sorts of loans for our investors? It's not what we feel as though is it's proper credit. It's it's playing a game of chicken with the cycle. Um, you can make a lot of money, yeah. And look, when we first established um, Revolution Asset Management five and a half years ago, we were in a period where there was no recession in 26 years. Um, people were saying, Bob, we're not going to lock up our money for what you call a medium-term horizon for 5 or 6% when rates were zero. We can lend it to these property developer guys, get 8 10 or 12% plus in 12 months. Isn't that good? Because it's backed by bricks and mortar. Um, a lot of those people are coming back these days and saying, you know what, we prefer well, your strategy over that because some of them have had pretty poor experience already. And I think there's more of that to come, sadly. Yeah, so so that's on the commercial side. But then you're looking at, you know, just uh, normal mums and dads, you know, people taking their kids to school, uh, you know, people that just want a house, right? Um so there's, you know, if you look at basic economics, right, what do they say that essentially the main reason why an Australian will sell their home is what, they lose their job, yes. right? So let's speak to something that's exactly in your wheelhouse, which is what um, are the circumstances that some of these companies that you know, you're seeing that are ASX listed, unlisted, um, in what event of macroeconomic stress with fiscal and monetary policy, which we're currently experiencing, do you think may potentially impact these businesses? And I think, and we're already starting to think, see, you know, companies start to cut. I think Microsoft just cut 200 jobs yesterday or something in Australia. So, like, what, what potential scenarios, um, and how is the, you know, I suppose the overall health in the, the, the larger businesses of Australia's economy right now? Yeah, look, we, 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 we observe that people are in fairly good position. I mean, we've got an unemployment rate of 3.5%. So that's historical lows. So whilst you've got a job and you've got cash flow coming in, you've got options. Mm. You may not be able to afford the new repayment, but generally a bank or a lender will work with you to maybe extend the tenor of the loan to, um, to accommodate you, know, you making some payments. It's only when you really get to that desperate situation where you lose your job for a long period of time, you can't get another one, where you see real stress in the, the residential property market. Now, this time around, you might see more stress because um, your listeners may remember in COVID, there was a, a, a term financing facility, TFF, that was offered to the banks at a 0.1% interest rate. And what that led to was the banks offering very low rate honeymoon periods in fixed rate loans 
that then converted to variable loans, which are all about to uh, go variable right about now and in the next six to eight months, um, which is you know quite often coined the uh, the mortgage cliff. Um, but look, that's a problem for mainly for the banks because they got this really cheap funding. Um, but with the banks, we don't see a wholesale enforcement action of people getting tipped out of their house. Um, the banks will be in a position where if these people maintain employment, they will be able to find a way through the next little period without the real pain of you know having large-scale foreclosures around the residential property markets. Um, having said that, the people that have extended themselves in the last two years especially, we're starting to see unseasonably high sales for people that have owned their property less than two years, according to CoreLogic. So that's a, a little bit of an early indicator that people who probably think, oh, you know, this is getting way too big on me. I need to get out. Um, I'll sell the property, pay off the pay off the bank, and maybe move back into rental accommodation so those, before they get foreclosed on. Do those CoreLogic numbers say whether or not that's um, closer to the city or rural, or does it say specifically? I'm not exactly sure whether you can make a, a general um, observation. I would say these are probably more fringe areas of the metropolitan areas where you typically get first-home buyers and that, that, that sort of cohort that, that have got you know, lower amounts of equity in their, in their homes um, and have probably stretched themselves to um, you know, balance the budget to make the payments on, on, their, on their mortgage payments, but then potentially get more squeezed on a cost-of-living basis as we've seen you know, all goods and services increase in, in price. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting one out there. And look, again, you know, for our listeners out there, we're just discussing the good old-fashioned risk first reward of what what's out there and why we're looking at particular assets. But um, I suppose the reason why we're having this conversation now is yes, there are there is a lot of private lenders out there in different asset classes. So we're just looking at essentially one asset class benefit to another. So back on the company, so there's 45 companies, right? 47, 47 loans. Yep. 47 loans, which you are currently doing. Um, with the uh, current economy as it is, if someone came to you, uh, or, 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 I phrase it a bit differently. In your opinion, what are you seeing in some of the best cash flow style businesses? Now, are you, is it fast moving consumer goods? Is it, is it you know, mid-tier infrastructure? Like, you know, what's your ideal loan? And, and why, yeah. why I'm phrasing this way, I wouldn't mind getting back into some of the loans. You've discussed like, you know, one or two, but, you know, a couple of the loans would sure. be very interesting. Absolutely. So early this year, we helped finance the acquisition of Paddy's Foods by PAG. Um, Paddy's Foods? You mean Paddy's Markets, Paddy Foods? No, no. Paddy's, P-A-T-T-I-E-S. Oh, Paddy's, the pies. Paddy's Pies. Four Paddy's and 20, Pies. As Aussie, as Aussie is four and 20 pies and Nana's Apple Pies. I had a mate that used to be the CFO. Uh, so not CFO, used to work for the CFO about 12 years ago. He loved it there. Right. So what do we love about that particular business? In some ways, it really does represent the um, honest biscuits to the frozen food aisle. So when people get um, you know, hit in the hip pocket, they have less money to spend, they will probably move from fresh to frozen. Uh, and these ready-to-eat meals, they bought, also bought Vesco as part of the acquisition, which are ready-to-eat meals, plus these, um, these, these frozen food um, type of products that have been around for a long time. We like the resilience of it. And you think about through the cycle, we saw patties trading in periods where, you know, things are a bit tougher, their cash flows actually sustain. They have, you know, large-scale Australian manufacturing, which they're rationalising to a couple of large centres, um, taking out cost synergies, but then also being able to supply Coles and Woolies um, like Arnott's 
you got very good um, market position to be able to push through input price shocks. Like as as every business has, has been affected, their ability to move up prices um, in in um, in 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 relation to all of their input prices, you know, be it raw materials, freight, interest costs, um, labor costs, um, energy costs, you name it. They, they just move that right through to the consumer and increase their prices, thereby sustaining their gross margin. So in that way, this is the kind of company we really like. Now, mm. I can guarantee you if you're a Coles or Woolies and you've got a, 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 a supplier of one or two uh, products and your prices go up, you're going to have to swallow some of that pain with, with, a, with Coles and Woolies breathing down your neck. Otherwise, they, they can do without your product. They just go, well, you know what, we'll just go with someone else. So – that sort of illustrates the, the 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 negotiating power of these large companies when you occupy a dominant market share um, is very very powerful and what we look for whenever we lend money to to these sorts of companies. Yeah. So what uh, what's the minimum size loan parcel you would look at um, these and days? Max. Yep. Yeah, so so these days, you know, we have a one point nine billion dollar fund. Yeah. So we're likely not to look at deals that are below sort of fifty million dollars in terms of our allocation. Um, and then on the size of a particular company, so we don't do smaller companies. So that generally means in Australia, we don't really look at opportunities that are below a thirty million dollar EBITDA kind of scale, uh, and that or above. So. That gives you a sense that they've got to be, you know, decent-sized businesses with good governance and good controls. And this is the fun part. So when you're looking through those financials, like uh, ideally, what type of profit margins um, are you looking? Yeah, well, this is interesting because you know we were looking at yeah. one the other day where essentially one particular industry said to make it work, it needs to be fourteen and a half percent, right? And then, yeah. but then you go, you know, speak to other colleagues in or you know, if in our business. I won't go to those numbers, but say someone else's business, you know, they won't touch a business unless it's like 30% as a bare minimum, right? Yeah, but yeah. you get some other businesses where, you know, 6% is huge because it's just so tight. Yeah. So what, what, like what type of profit margins, as you said, is cash flow orientated? So when yeah. you're looking at this business to lend, is there enough room, mm. right? So I think, um, yeah, it's very difficult to generalize because as you, as you correctly yeah, point yeah. out, industries and businesses within those industries have very different profit margins depending on their positions and what what is a more mature market with a lot of players, generally lower profit margins. But is it sustainable is what we look for. So whatever that particular gross margin is and whatever cash flows it is, how, how sustainable is that through the cycle is what we're looking for. What, what sort of capex requirements? Is it maintenance capex? Is it, is, it, is it absolutely mandatory capex or voluntary capex? You know, what are the things they need to you know, think about in terms of if labor costs go up, or their input prices go up. What happens to their gross margin? What happens to, you know, their profitability in that mm. in that sort of scenario? What has happened in the past when these things have happened? Have they been able to sustain? What is a trend? Um, you know, what is their total addressable market? What is their market share in that? You know, what is their you know net promoter scores? You know, what do their customers think of them? You know, is this the right leverage for this type of business? Is that sustainable? Um, these are things that come with experience, and so. You know, I can tell you, you know, a cyclical business, even though we don't we don't look at them, you know, they 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 can obviously not sustain a high level of leverage compared to private hospitals with huge barriers like Brookfield owns Healthscape. They can maintain a higher leverage of five north of five times debt to EBITDA. Um, that's considered to be high leverage, but because of you know your market position being number two behind 
Ramsey um, in private health, you know, you can sustain that sort of leverage with a very strong sponsor in Brookfield with a very sizable equity check that sits as a shock absorber for any any loss that we may incur in the future. So interesting. We can sit here all day and going through these things. <laughs> <laughs> I might um, I might sort of um, leave you with a couple of thoughts about. Well, I was going to I was going to ask you know, yeah. what, what keeps you up at night, and essentially, why do you get up in the morning? Yeah, cool. So, what keeps me up at night? I think, look, the the kind of uh, macroeconomic um, you know, a backdrop that we 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 sort of run in our scenarios. If that were to come true. Um, then we would we're in a world of pain the whole economy right that we're talking about huge unemployment we're talking about big declines in property prices we're talking about you know the the big four Australian banks potentially they're, they're levered they're levered institutions by their very nature so these are the kind of things that that I worry about but I think look the RBA is able to navigate their way through this um, well without you know get letting inflation get out of control we hope that it moderates so we don't get a very deep and um, and 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 heavy recession, but um, you know that's that's sort of the the sort of left tail risk I worry about sometimes. Um, on a day to day basis, you know we're we're very comfortable with the portfolio as it currently stands, uh, and the the, the uh, very proud of the deals we've done. Even more proud of the deals we've said no to that have been financed by others. Um, and and I guess what gets me up in the morning is we really care about you know looking after our client money. We take that responsibility very seriously. Um, being able to deliver what we promise is what we stand for. Um, and we've got very strong governance in what we do. So some of the things that set us apart from some of our peers, we, in all of these deals, a lot of them, we get upfront fees. So we not only get the appropriate credit margin for a loan, we quite often get upfront fees. Um, some of our peers take a more cavalier approach on those and take those fees to the management company. We have a philosophy of passing all those fees to the fund in their entirety. The second thing we point to is we have um, a, 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 um, a philosophy that says we don't charge performance fees. Why is that? That comes foreign to many people. Think about we. the best we can do is get our money back, right? We're a capital-stable product. If we have an incentive to charge performance fees, we will take on more risk. It's human nature because we get the upside out of that. So we don't want to have that misalignment of interest. Um, and then thirdly, um, we have a very good governance with every single loan being reviewed every month by a third-party valuation agent called Leadenhall who report back to our responsible entity. So, you know, if you think about going into private debt today, yeah, you've got wonderful attributes. You've got floating rate, security, as I mentioned, diversity. But how do you know you're not walking into a ticking time bomb where there's a whole bunch of defaults waiting to happen? We have the ability to tell our clients and our prospective clients, these loans are being reviewed every month according to our original base case for all of these loans and only and if and only if they're performing will we value these assets at par and out of the 47 loans you know with the exception of genesis 46 of them are at par today and are performing at our original base case of when we went into the loans so we 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 really look forward to you know having us deliver on our promise to our clients through the cycle um, and really you know navigate these um these these sort of uncertain times that we expect coming coming um, in the next 12 months. But also being there with patient capital, we're experiencing some of the larger inflows we've ever had in the firm's history because this yield is now looking very attractive to many. When you think about what do you think the equity market's going to return over the next 12 months, we can deliver you a net return delivered quarterly in income that's going to be well into the mid-nines. Uh, and that 
for a lot of people is pretty compelling when you look at the long-term return for many asset classes. Stability is very, very compelling, especially in these times of <laughs> volatility. Indeed. Um, look, if listeners um, want to learn more about uh, Revolution Asset Management yourself, um, how do they get a hold of you? Is there is mm. there a team or you know how does that yeah. work? So we um, are very fortunate to have Channel Capital as our investment servicing partner. So they look after all of the institutional grade back and middle office, risk and compliance, finance, IT, distribution and marketing um, for on behalf of Revolution Asset Management and other uh, good fund managers out there. So if um, anybody wants more information, then we, you can go to revolutionam.com.au or Channel Capital um, have got their own website. Um, but there's a, there's a, there's a team of, of great distribution people that they can get in touch. Um, we can provide you with all the information you like. Um, and yeah, and happy to, in, on an individual basis, if people are looking for, you know, a, maybe um, a, a bit more of an insight, happy to make myself or, or some of the team available for, for chats to um, people for, for their consideration. Well, Bob, it has been a pleasure having you on. I really, really enjoyed your thoughts and your insights and, uh, Looking forward to having you back in maybe 12 months to see how everything's going. Great, Murdoch. Well, um, again, thanks to uh, yourself and York for um, making this possible. Appreciate the, uh, the opportunity. Fantastic. Have a great day. Yep, you too. Thanks. Any views expressed in this recording do not represent the view of any other third party and are the sole personal opinions of the speaker. Any reference to financial product does not constitute advice or recommendation and before any action you should seek proper advice from your financial professional. Australian listeners should head to www.moneysmart.gov.au to find more information on obtaining financial advice. To get in touch with York, head to our website www.yorkwealth.com.au.